letzten Vortrag, der wird auf Englisch stattfinden und von Brian Hall aus New Albany, Bucharest sein. Und das Thema wird sein, Kant's Conception of Genius and the Boundary between Art and Science. And there will be a handout. Thank you for having me. So in the critique of the power of judgments, what I'll abbreviate as CJ, Immanuel Kant defines genius by distinguishing it from science. At the heart of Kant's distinction is the idea that scientists possess a rule-governed procedure to generate their discoveries, whereas no rule-governed procedure can fully determine the products of genius. Genius involves a, quote, free correspondence of the imagination to the lawfulness of the understanding, unquote, that a rule-governed procedure could never produce. This leads Kant to argue that only artists can be geniuses and only insofar as they produce beautiful art. Although Kant believes that genius can be rationally reconstructed in terms of a rule-governed procedure, this procedure will always underdetermine the products of genius. In CJ, Kant offers Isaac Newton as the paradigmatic example of a, quote, great mind, unquote, who is nevertheless not a genius. And for an extended discussion of this, you can see quote number four on your handout. In the Principia, Newton famously claims that he frames no hypotheses and describes his scientific discoveries as deduced from the phenomenon. Given Kant's characterization of Newton and Newton's own characterization of himself, one way of understanding the rule-governed procedure Kant has in mind is in terms of what contemporary philosophers of science call a logic of discovery. In other words, a rule-governed procedure where the discovery is the logical consequence of certain well-established premises. If a scientific discovery cannot be explained in terms of a logic of discovery, while also meeting all of Kant's other criteria for genius, however, then it should be considered an example of scientific genius by Kant's own lines. And here's my thesis. This is also on your handout at the top. Although I will argue that Newton did possess a logic of discovery for his law of universal gravitation that has been imitated by others, nevertheless, he did not possess a rule-governed procedure for generating the logic of discovery he used to establish the law of universal gravitation. It is the second order discovery that makes Newton count as a scientific genius according to Kant's own criteria for genius. This paper is broken into three sections. The first section will examine the criteria by which Kant distinguishes the genius from the scientist in CJ and will argue that Kant's standards of proof in science are close to those demanded by a logic of discovery. The second section examines how Newton's argument for universal gravitation in Book 3 of the Principia reflects a logic of discovery and so fails to meet Kant's conditions for genius. The final section contends that Newton's discovery of a new approach towards argumentation in natural philosophy, his logic of discovery, counts as a second-order scientific discovery that meets the main criteria for genius that Kant articulates in CJ. Part 1, Kant's theory of genius. In CJ, there are four explicit criteria used to distinguish geniuses from scientists, and these are all on your handout. Number one, genius is a talent for producing, that for which no determinate rule can be given. In other words, genius is original. Two, the products of genius are not themselves the result of imitation, must yet serve, other, serve others in that way. In other words, the products of genius are exemplary. Three, genius cannot produce according to a plan and communicate to others precepts that would put them in a position to produce similar products. In other words, genius is natural. Four, by means of genius, nature does not prescribe the rule 
to science, but to arts, and even to the latter, only insofar as it is to be beautiful. The term rule denotes something different in four than what it denotes in one. In four, genius is itself the rule. Genius gives the rule to art through its own beautiful products. These serve as models to inspire others, similarly disposed into producing their own beautiful art. This ties it fairly closely to number two, insofar as the products of genius must serve as an example to others. According to one, however, genius cannot itself be analyzed in terms of rules. In other words, genius can be a rule, but it's not itself explicable in terms of rules. As number four suggests, nature gives its rule to artistic production insofar as it is beautiful art, but not to scientific production. This distinction, however, seems to beg the very question at issue, namely, can scientists be geniuses? Since four assumes the very thing I am challenging, I will focus on criteria one through three. I will argue that if an example of scientific discovery can meet conditions one through three, then it should be considered an example of scientific genius by constant alliance. What does it mean to say that genius cannot be explained in terms of rules? In other words, how are we to understand the use of the term rule in the first criterion? Perhaps genius is a black box of creativity, and there are no regulations that govern its procedure. Kant thinks, however, that artistic production does possess certain regulations that would extend to genius as a form of artistic production. When discussing artistic genius, Kant holds that the production of beautiful art requires, and this is quote number one on your handout, acquaintance with ancient languages, uh, I'm sorry, uh, acquaintance with ancient languages, wide reading of those authors considered to be classical, history, acquaintance with antiquities, etc. Likewise, Kant thinks that the production of beautiful art requires following certain rules, which make the art, and this is quote number two on your handout, academically correct, and so originality of his talents constitutes one, but not the only, essential element in the character of the genius. Although the products of genius must be made according to rules, there is still a gap between what the rule-governed procedure dictates and the ultimate product that creativity and originality occupy. For Kant, the difference between genius and science does not lie in whether one possesses a rule-governed procedure while the other does not. The difference rather lies in the degree to which the rule-governed procedure determines their respective products. Whereas genius requires a gap for originality between what the rules dictate and the eventual product, science requires that there is no such gap. This is relevant for showing why science would not meet the first criterion for genius mentioned above. Why does Kant mention the second condition? In other words, that a product of genius must be able to serve as an example to inspire others. Clearly, since originality is an essential feature of genius, a product of genius cannot merely imitate what has come before. Something can, however, be entirely original while at the same time being nonsense. Kant wants to preclude this possibility of such inventions counting as products of genius, which is why he adds this condition. Assuming that nonsense does not inspire, then the products of genius cannot be nonsense. Returning to the first condition, how should we understand the idea of a rule-governed procedure that fully determines the products of that procedure? As mentioned above, I believe Kant thinks Newton possesses a logic of discovery. This logic of discovery can be learned by others to reproduce the same discovery, a very important function of the scientific community, or to make new discoveries of their own. This explains why Newton, in Kant's mind, would fail the third condition of genius. 
Kant himself suggests this way of interpreting the difference between what rule, role rules play in scientific discovery and what role they play in artistic production when he claims that there is no such thing as a science of the beautiful in CGM. His main reason for rejecting a science of the beautiful, and this is quote number three on your handout, is that the latter would have to be determined by means of proof. What exactly does Kant mean by proof? Here it's helpful to look at Kant's logic lectures. Of the existing logic lectures, the Donaubundlachen logic from 1792 is chronologically closest to the publication of C.J. In this series of lectures, Kant claims that there are three parts of a proof. There's the proof itself, the proposition to be proven, and the relationship between the two, which he understands in terms of consequence where the proof provides the grounds. In other words, proofs involve the relationship of logical consequence, and Kant even uses the example of a categorical syllogism to make clear that this is the relationship that he has in mind. In C.J., Kant holds that Newton's principles of natural philosophy can be learned since the latter, and this is again quote number four on your handout, could make all the steps that he had to take from the first elements of geometry to his great and profound discoveries entirely intuitive, not only to himself, but to everyone else, and thus set them out for posterity quite determinately. Given what Kant says about proof in his logic lectures, it seems as if the easiest way to understand the connection between these steps is in terms of logical consequence. If so, then for Kant, Newton's logic, I'm sorry, Newton's law of universal gravitation should be considered the logical consequence of well-established premises, in other words, as the result of a logic of discovery. What remains to be determined, however, is whether Newton's argument for the law of universal gravitation meets the standards of a logic of discovery. Now, part two, Newton's argument for the law of universal gravitation. Well, although Newton's complete argument for the law of universal gravitation in book three of the Principia is too long to deal with adequately in this paper of this length and certainly in 15 minutes, a brief overview of his argumentative strategy should make clear that he's implementing a logic of discovery. The stages of Newton's argument tend to exhibit a conditional form where the if-then propositions of his mathematical theory established in book one for his laws of motion serve as inference tickets in book three, allowing Newton to infer forces from motions, motions from forces, and net forces from contributing forces. Most of Newton's arguments for specific propositions in book three begin by invoking phenomena, in other words, inductive generalizations from observations of celestial motion. With a straightforward application of modus ponens, one can infer the consequence of the mathematical conditional as long as the phenomenon in question instantiates the antecedent. These mathematical conditionals should be considered the heart of Newton's rule-governed procedure in Book 3. All right, back to Newton. Um, this is on the back side of your handout. I give a quick example of what I'm thinking of when it comes to Newton's justification of Proposition 1 in Book 3. For example, in his argument for Proposition 1 of Book 3, Newton notes that Propositions 2 or 3 of Book 1 allow one to infer from the fact that a body's orbit obeys the laws of law of areas to the conclusion that the body is held in its orbit by a force directed towards the center of the primary body, centripetal force. Likewise, Corollary 6 of Proposition 4 of Book 1 allows one to infer from the fact that an orbiting body obeys Kepler's harmonic law to the conclusion that it is directed towards the central body by a force inversely proportional to the square of the distance from the central body. 
since the moons of Jupiter obey the law of areas and Kepler's harmonic law, according to Phenomenon 1, one can conclude in Proposition 1 of Book 3 that the moons of Jupiter are maintained in their orbits by a force directed towards the center of Jupiter, which varies inversely with the square of their distance from the center of Jupiter. Following this procedure, I believe one can reconstruct Newton's complete argument for the law of universal gravitation in such a way that the conclusion is the logical consequence of certain well-established premises. Since the argument is deductively valid, there is no gap between what the premises dictate and the conclusion itself that the creativity and originality of genius would need to occupy. If one accepts the premises, then the power of logic compels you to accept the conclusion. Consequently, it would seem as if Newton's discovery of the law of universal gravitation fails to meet the first criterion for genius. This is a rule-governed procedure that Newton passes on to others through the publication of the Principia itself. The idea seems to be, follow my logic of discovery, and you too will discover things that do not require the framing of hypotheses. Thus, Newton's discovery fails to meet the third condition for genius, insofar as the procedure that produced the law of universal gravitation can be learned by others to produce discoveries of their own. Regardless of whether the law of universal gravitation itself serves as an example to inspire others, so meeting Kant's second criterion for genius, insofar as the discovery fails to meet the first and the third criteria for genius, it fails to be an example of scientific genius. And finally, part three, Newton's scientific genius. Ultimately, what is needed as a counterexample to Kant is a scientific discovery that is underdetermined by a rule-governed procedure, thus meeting the first and third conditions, but is also an example to others, thus meeting the second condition. If we can find such an example, then it would seem as if we likewise have an example of scientific genius by constant lines. Although I believe Newton's argument for the law of universal gravitation can be reconstructed so that the law can be seen as the logical consequence of certain well-established premises, nevertheless, he did not possess a rule-governed procedure for generating the logic of discovery he used to establish the law. Traditional approaches to scientific discovery in Newton's own day tended to be either inductive or hypothetically deductive. Neither approach, however, adequately captures Newton's argument. There are aspects of the argument that are inductive. For example, the phenomena that Newton invokes. Even so, for Newton, the primary function of these inductive generalizations is to support the premises of an otherwise deductive argument. One can also view his third rule of reasoning as one that licenses generalizations since it attributes to all bodies whatsoever those properties that have been found to belong to all bodies within reach of our experiments. Even so, the kinds of generalizations that the third rule licenses are far broader than what simple induction would allow, since it lets us extend our conclusions not only to all observable bodies, but also to all unobservable bodies as well. Newton clearly recognizes the provisional status of these inferences, however, in the fourth rule of reasoning. Although there is a surface similarity between Newton's mathematical approach and the mathematical approach of natural philosophers like Galileo and Huygens, uh, for example, proceeding from mathematical axioms to rigorously de demonstrated propositions, there are also important differences. Whereas Newton takes the if-then propositions of his mathematical theory established in Book 1 to hold true from the outset of Book 3, where phenomena first serve as antecedents uh, of these mathematical conditionals, Galileo and Huygens begin with mathematical axioms 
and then derive phenomena as observable consequences that are then intended to provide evidence for the mathematical axioms themselves. In this way, Galileo and Huygens are clearly operating within the context of a traditional hypothetical deductive approach, whereas Newton is not. One might look at the various thought experiments that Newton uses in his argument for the law of universal gravitation as examples of hypothetical deductive reasoning that fail to meet the standards of a logic of discovery, since the hypotheses themselves are not generated by a rule-governed procedure. And here I'm thinking of, for example, the moon test in Proposition 4 of Book 3. Although Newton does use hypotheses, it is important to note that the hypothetical deductive reasoning that Newton uses, deducing consequences about motions or forces from counterfactual assumptions, is very different from the hypothetical deductive reasoning, for example, deducing observable consequences from metaphysical assumptions that someone like Descartes uses in the Principles of Philosophy, and which Newton criticizes in the general scolium to the Principia. Whereas Descartes must use creative intuition to generate his purportedly, purportedly explanatory metaphysical hypotheses about the unobservable, and here probably the most infamous example are his plenum vortices. Newton is simply rearranging facts about observables to generate counterfactual situations. Although Newton's logic of discovery in the Principia incorporates both inductive and hypothetical deductive reasoning, it cannot be reduced to either of these approaches. There is a gap between what these other procedures would dictate and Newton's own rule-governed procedure in the Principia. Newton needed creativity and originality to bridge this gap. For this reason, the creation of Newton's logic of discovery would seem to meet Kant's first criterion for genius insofar as it required originality. Likewise, since there was no rule-governed procedure that entailed its logic of discovery, this rule-governed procedure could not be learned by others to generate their own logics of discovery. For this reason, Newton's creation of his logic of discovery would seem to meet Kant's third criterion for genius, insofar as it was a natural talent that could not be passed on to others through any rule-governed procedure. Finally, Newton's logic of discovery meets Kant's second condition for genius, insofar as it has served as an example to inspire others in their own scientific pursuits. Kant himself serves as an example of this last point. Newton's reason for writing the Principia was to discover and effectually distinguish the true motions of particular bodies from the appearance. This is a quote from the Principia. Kant tries to do much the same thing in his Metaphysical Foundations of Natural Science from 1786. And his argument there bears a strong similarity to the argumentative strategy that Newton adopts in Book 3 of the Principia. Just as Newton begins with apparent motion or phenomena, which are relative motions, for example, uh, the motion of the moons of Jupiter relative to Jupiter, in Proposition 1 of Book 3, so too does Kant begin with appearances of relative motion. Kant attempts to derive true motions from apparent motions using antecedently established laws of motion in conjunction with these apparent motions and his modal categories from the Critique of Pure Reason. This, similarity to this is similar to how Newton tries to establish a privileged frame of reference within which we can determine the true motion of objects in the solar system, namely the heliocentric model he introduces in Proposition 12 of Book 3. From the phenomena of orbital motion in conjunction with the if-then propositions of his mathematical theory and his laws of motion. So here's the conclusion. Consequently, Although the law of universal gravitation that Newton's logic of discovery produced does not count as an example of scientific genius according to Kant's criteria for genius, the logic of discovery that Newton produced 
should count as an example of scientific genius by Kant's own lines. At the end of the day, the boundary between art and science is not as clear as Kant hoped to make it. Since both artists and scientists can be geniuses, Kant must offer us some other way of distinguishing between them or must abandon the distinction altogether. Thank you.